Uh, I don't know if you've seen there's this uh, this trend. I've seen it a couple times, like on talk shows and different things, where people will do these uh, great big large scale paintings, and they do them really really quickly. It's these artists that have kind of perfected their craft on how they do it. And a couple times I've seen it, they'll do it where it's like uh, maybe to a song or you know, they make it real dramatic, but they do it really quickly. And a lot of times it's, it's a canvas, like six by six, huge thing. And they'll start throwing paint up there and they'll be, they'll be doing all this stuff and the music's going and it'll be like two minutes. And then all of a sudden they're done. And as they're going and as they're painting, people are kind of looking at them like what in the world? Cause it just looks like they're throwing paint up there and they're just kind of moving their hand around and I remember seeing one where the guy did all this and he's going crazy and he gets done and you can't really see anything. And then he takes the edge of the canvas and he flips it over and he flips it upside down. And then you see it's like a portrait, somebody's face or something. And it's incredible. And you're like, whoa, how did he do that? In like two minutes, it looked like he was just throwing stuff up there. And then all of a sudden it's this incredible painting and you look at it and the reveal and you see it. But while they're painting, there's a lots of kind of unsure faces like, what is happening right now? And, and I was thinking about that scene, and I've seen that happen a few different times if you've ever seen those before. That in a way, that's kind of like what we're following in the life of Jesus as we're making our th- way through the Gospels. That Jesus comes onto the scene. Uh, we talked about a few weeks ago as we started this series that he is the logos, the truth, the embodiment of all truth. That this is God now in the flesh walking amongst us and as he comes in and he begins to walk and teach and preach it's almost like he's painting this picture that nobody quite has got the fullness of they're all kind of scratching their heads looking at him and and part of what we've been saying as we've been walking through this series is that every single uh, person that's coming into contact with jesus and those that are starting to think that maybe this is the messiah that we've been waiting for has all these expectations that they bring to the table And Jesus is exploding a lot of them. And he's saying and doing things that don't fit exactly in the way that they think it should. And so in a lot of ways, they're kind of scratching their head as Jesus is painting this new picture. And he's telling them things and he's doing things and he's starting to talk about what it looks like to follow him and to be part of God's kingdom and all these things that he's saying. But nobody's quite sure exactly what's happening. And so Jesus is what we see is is the way we've laid this out. If you think about his ministry, his public ministry is really about three years long. And the way that we kind of break that up is the first year is the year of obscurity or, or being introduced. People aren't really sure who Jesus is. He's not real popular quite yet. Towards the end of that first year to the beginning of the second year, he starts to grow in popularity and it grows very quickly. And the second year, he becomes really, really popular. And then the third year, because he keeps saying and doing things that aren't exactly the way they think it should go, it turns from year of popularity to the year of them kind of coming at him. And it becomes the year of of them attacking Jesus. And it starts to see this opposition. So sometimes we say the year of popularity and then the year of opposition for the third year. And so where we are as we're walking through the life of Jesus and we've been talking about this is that we're really turning the corner on that first year from obscurity to this popularity. And it's starting to grow. And Jesus is teaching and preaching and he's done some miracles and he's starting to do things. And people are starting to come and crowds are starting to gather in. But as he does this and as he speaks and as he teaches and as he heals and as he does these things, he's continually kind of tweaking their understanding of the way things should be. And their expectations aren't completely met in what he's saying. And part of the reasons for that, and we've talked about this a few times, is they were expecting 
uh, a nationalistic revolution. They had this pride of, of the Messiah is going to come and he's going to restore Israel and he's going to bring us back to power. This is, remember, uh, at this time they're under the heavy hand of Roman oppression. Things are difficult and they're hard and they're, they're not a sovereign state. They're under the Roman government. And so they're waiting for this person to come and bring all these things together. But Jesus is always not saying exactly what they think he's going to say. And so you see that struggle as they go through that. And so this morning, though, what we're going to look at is as Jesus is continuing to preach and teach, we're going to see him calling to himself disciples, those that would come and follow him. And we're going to see the call of Peter, James and John, and then Matthew a little later in the chapter here in Luke chapter five. But what he does is he starts to call these people again. It's not their expectation. He's going to call some uneducated fishermen. He's going to call a guy uh, known as Levi or also Matthew. That's who we see at the end of the chapter who actually works for the Roman government as a tax collector. And he starts to assemble this group of people that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to their understanding of who the Messiah would be. But as we do that and as we look at that, as he calls these disciples, this is what I want us to think about this morning. And as Jesus is calling them to come and follow him, I want us to consider what it is he's calling them to. And I'd say as we think about what he's calling them to, uh, I would also uh, encourage you to think about what he's calling us to. If you consider yourself a believer, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, that what he's saying and calling them to applies to us. Because the way this folds out is, is Jesus calls disciples and then he calls them to go make disciples who make disciples. And we're in that line. And that's part of what he's calling them to is what he's calling us to. And so what is he calling them to? And then secondly, the heart of the disciple. If we're going to follow Jesus, the, the heart that we see of those that he's calling, what that looks like. And then lastly, how do we do this? How do we go out and begin to do the things that he's calling us to? And so I want us to think about that in discipleship as we look at the call of these disciples. And so. As we jump in to Luke chapter five, again, we're now about a year into Jesus's ministry. We're really turning that corner where he's starting to get very popular. In fact, just you heard Luke read for us from Luke chapter five just a minute ago. The first verse there says on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in to hear the word of God, you start to get this image of crowds now coming and they're pressing in to hear what Jesus has to say. And they're starting to be there and they're starting to hear about this guy and his teaching and the way he teaches with authority and the things he says. But not only the things he says, but some of the miracles that he started to do. Most likely as we're introduced here to, to Jesus calling these disciples and they leave and they come and they follow him. This is probably uh, several times in the timeline that Jesus has had interactions with these guys. Now, they're going to come and follow him and leave everything. We're going to see that in just a second. But they've also started to kind of come at different times. And so if you if you lay out chronologically all the Gospels together, Jesus calls them a couple different times and they kind of come with them and then they go back to fishing and they're doing some other things. And so it's not the very first time they've met him, but they're going to kind of jump in and go with them full time now. And so that's what we're going to look at here in Luke chapter five. And so as that scene folds out. Jesus is there teaching and preaching and he's beside a lake. People are crowding in on him. So he hops in Peter's boat and he says, push it out a little ways. And so you can imagine the scene. They're all right on top of him, right by the water's edge. But by getting in the boat, it gives him a greater perspective to see the people. And it says he begins to teach 
and he teaches them the word of the God, a word of God and people are there. But when he finishes, he says to Peter, well, let's go out and fish. Let's go put the boat out a little further and we'll fish. And Peter says to him, well, you know, we did that. <laughs> we did that all night. We've been fishing and we haven't caught anything. But since you've told me to do it, Lord, I will do it. And so he listens to Jesus and they go out. And it says they catch a miraculous catch of fish, so much so that their boat is about to sink. And they bring in all these fish and all this stuff and they get to the shore and look what happens in verse 9. And for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so I want you just to see as we start to think about this call of what Jesus is calling us to. What you see right there is it says they left everything and followed him. Or if you look a little later in verse 27, it talks about Levi. Levi is also Matthew. Don't let that throw you. Simon is also Peter. Gets confusing in the Bible. Names change and they get referred to different ways, but same people. So Levi slash Matthew in verse 27. And he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And so when we think about what Jesus is calling us to as disciples. We see this refrain over and over throughout the Gospels. That Jesus calls us to come and follow him. He says, follow me, and they leave everything, and they come, and they begin to follow him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, come check out what I'm saying. Um, meet me here next week for an hour, and you can kind of decide what that looks like. He says, no, come with me and see what it's like. Come follow me. Come be part of what I'm doing. And he calls people into this all-of-life discipleship. Now, if you know anything about first-century discipleship, that's not uh, surprising at all. If you had a rabbi, uh, a teacher, that's what rabbi means, and he would call disciples to him, and it was somebody you wanted to be discipled with, it meant that you would give your life to them, an apprenticeship. You would go with them, and you'd spend your time with them, and you would learn from them. Uh, oftentimes, they would memorize their teachings and their sayings. They would spend lots and lots of time together, and you would want to become like your teacher in every way. And that's what would be the expectation is Jesus is calling disciples to come and to follow him. But the problem is when we start to think about discipleship today in our culture, we often don't see it like that. Apprenticeship is very kind of uh, not so much prevalent today as it used to be. Um, the ideas that are that are being sown here when they talk about discipleship is not exactly the way our world works today. And so we have a hard time maybe with some of this, that we just pick up everything and go follow Jesus. We leave all of it and go follow him. The problem, I think, at least in part, is we have this very much consumer language in everything we do. Uh, we're going through a new member class right now. We do that every so often. And I always talk about the difference between being a disciple and being a consumer. Uh, we have this consumer language where we live because we're inundated with it in everything. Everything is like a commodity type relationship. If you can give me something that is worth and value, then I will give you my time. Right? We do that in the things that we buy, uh, our cell phone provider, our TV, the people that we do business with. It even becomes that way sometimes in friendships. If you give me something that's of value to me, then I will give you my time. And that's because we are well-discipled consumers in our culture. That's the way we operate. 
But what happens is we bring that into the church and we begin to think of the church that way. I don't know if you've considered this, but even think about the language that we use. This is a church service, right? What time is your service, right? We use that consumer language in the way we operate. And so what we do is instead of seeing that we're going to follow Jesus in every area of our life, seeking to be obedient and growing in obedience to him in everything we do, we see it as like, I might drop in and if you do enough things to keep me entertained, maybe I'll come back. And sadly, that's not what discipleship looks like that Jesus calls us to. He says, you come and follow me. And it comes into every area of your life and everything you do. And that's what he calls the disciples to do. I want you to think about what we've talked about to this point, if you've been with us. The very first thing we said was we looked at John 1, chapter 1, the very beginning there. And it says that Jesus has always existed, that he is God, that he is the logos, which means truth embodied. The way he speaks is the way things are. And if that is true of who Jesus is, does it make any sense at all that he would be someone you might add to your life an hour a week? It's insanity. If Jesus is who he says he is, the idea that we follow him in everything makes perfect sense. And that's exactly what he does here is he turns to these guys and he says, you come and follow me. And they drop everything and they go and they begin to follow him. But look at the second thing he said there to them in verse 10. Right. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so discipleship is following Jesus in every area of our life, seeking to be obedient to him in all things. But then he says, come with me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Uh, If you look at parallel passages or actually probably the first time he called them, uh, Matthew chapter four, Mark chapter one, Jesus says to them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We see that refrain over and over. His call is to come and follow him, but then to go and show what he's like. To go and tell people and alert them to who God is and what he's doing through Jesus. And so the idea of what Jesus is calling us to is to follow him in every area of our life. But it's also to go and let people know what he's like. To begin to alert them to the rule and reign of God in all things and what he's doing in Jesus. And we're called into that as disciples. And so I want you to consider uh, how stark of a contrast that may have been to some of the people around and listening and why it started to cause problems the the longer his ministry went. Why it goes from the year of popularity to the year of opposition over time. As Jesus comes and he begins to call them in to come follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. The way the religious elite of the day were operating is they'd gotten to this place where they'd placed all these rules on everyone. They'd taken the things from the Old Testament and they'd expanded them into all these great big rules and all these things that you were to do and what it was to look like. And what they'd started to do, which I think started out with good intentions to help people be holy and follow the Lord in all these different ways, had grown to be a way in which they could divide people. Who's in and who's out? How they could look down on the people that were really bad and they could feel good about themselves for doing some good things. And they begin to do that. And Jesus steps in and he says, come follow me. And then I'm going to send you out to be fishers of men. And you're going to go to all people. And you're going to alert them to who God is and what he's like. And he began to step on the toes of the religious elite in every way. And he started to show them what it looks like to love all people. 
And the problem is, instead of it being come follow me and then we'll huddle up together as the good people, it was come follow me and we're going to go to all people. And that was a problem because they didn't like that. They liked it being we're the in and we're the good ones and those are the bad people and we like to look down on them. We'll see that in just a second when he calls Matthew. That's exactly what happens. And so the call of Jesus is to come follow him, but then to go and to be fishers of men. But in order to be able to do that, I want you to think about the heart issue, the way in which we can actually do that. We can begin to live in those ways. And so look what happens with these guys. Uh, Go back to verse four. Right. So when Jesus had finished preaching, as he's sitting in the boat, he turns to Simon, who's also Peter, just so we're clear. And he says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Or or, uh, verse 27 and 28, when he calls Matthew. And he went out and saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at the booth. And he said, come follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And so when we consider the heart of these first disciples. And it alerts us to what the heart of a true disciple looks like. And I want you to focus first on that part with Peter. He's been fishing all night. Peter is a professional fisherman. That is how he makes his living. And here this teacher comes and he's obviously enamored and taken with Jesus and what he's saying and what he's seen him do. He's kind of overwhelmed with it. But when when Jesus says to him, put your nets out again, and he goes, yeah, but we we fished all night and it didn't work. We didn't catch anything. He says, but Lord, at your word, I will do so. And you see a humility in Peter. I mean, if you think about it, this is one area, probably the only area for Peter with Jesus that he would feel like I'm an expert that knows more about this than Jesus does. I'm a fisherman. This is what I do. But at Jesus's words, he says he humbles himself and he says, I will do what you tell me to do. Or when he goes along the way and he sees Matthew sitting there, Levi sitting there as a tax collector, and he says, you come with me. He leaves everything and he gets up and he follows him. And so we start to think about the heart that's under that. And I want you to think about that. As as Peter and his friends get back to the shore after they catch the fish and they leave everything and follow him. It says they left their boats and they left the stuff and they went and followed Jesus. The humility it takes. Their identity, their worth, who they were as fishermen, they're willing to leave that. The same with Matthew. Or, Or the willingness of Peter to hear what Jesus says and say, okay. Doesn't make any sense in my experience what you're saying, but at your word, Lord, I'm going to do what you say. And there's a humility there to follow Jesus and to listen to him in these areas and to say that. And so the first thing I want you to consider to follow Jesus, the heart that is there is is to have a true humility to see Jesus for who he is, to see him as greater than I am, to be able to follow him in all things. And there's a humility that comes with that. But the second part of it, and I want you to think about these guys leaving their jobs, uh, leaving their families. It doesn't mean they'll never go back to their jobs. In fact, we see that later on. They do go back to fishing. They do see their families again. It's not like they're saying goodbye to everyone. But they're now making their primary identity be as Jesus' students. To be disciples more than their job, more than their family, more than the status that they might get. Or the money they might be making. They drop those things and they're willing to be counted with Jesus and get their identity from him. 
And so there's a humility of seeing Jesus for who he is in light of who I am and placing him first. But there's also this piece of getting my identity from Christ rather than anything else. And so we start to think about what it looks like to be a disciple. The heart of a disciple is I'm going to care more what God says, what Jesus says, than what anyone else says. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing a lot of the time. Because our culture, our friends, our family, the people we spend time with are going to see things in one way. And then you're going to hear Jesus say, no, 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 this is the reality of how it is. And to root our identity in Jesus rather than what people say is not easy. A lot of times that's very difficult. In fact, there's things that Jesus tells us very clearly in the Bible that our society goes against completely. In fact, I'm disturbed by this trend in our culture right now. That if you disagree with someone or if someone's done something that you think is wrong, that they've done something morally wrong that you think is not the right way, our society has decided that it's okay to belittle, to attack, to demean, to shame, and to put guilt on those people and tell them they're beyond redemption. In fact, we're applauding that. That that's the way that we should operate. And I see it all the time, over and over again. This person said this and they were wrong. We should be done with them. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus says. The exact opposite in every way of what Jesus tells us to do. And it's going to put you in this position. If you say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus and I want to be obedient to him, that you're going to stand in direct opposition to what the world says. And the wisdom of Jesus is going to look like folly to the rest of the world. And the way that we grow as a disciple in that is you root and ground your identity in Jesus above all else. And the way that happens and the way that we grow in that is by understanding the grace of God in your own life. When you understand the grace of God in your own life, it leads to a humility that leads to rooting and grounding your identity in Jesus. When I understand that the God of the universe that created me in his image has made me to know and love him above all else. And that I have rebelled against that, that over and over and over, I've sought my identity from other things that I've turned my back on him, that I am a desperate sinner that is so often arrogant and self-centered and wants to make it all about me. And I come to the realization that in and of myself, I am a bigger mess than I can ever fix. But yet God loves me so much that he came to do what I could never do for me. And when I see that, it's radically humbling because left to myself, I am a mess. But when I see the grace of God and the way he loves me and the way he pursues me and the things that he goes to great lengths to take my sin, to give me his righteousness, to root and ground me in who he is. It gives me an identity that is unshakable. And it's not because I'm a really good person. It's because God is gracious. Because he loves me because he loves me. And when that happens and I start to see that and I start to realize and experience that, that I am redeemed because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. It makes my identity all about him. 
is what he's done for me. And when that begins to take place in our life and God shows you that and he brings you into that understanding and then somebody else says, no, 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 this is the way it is. And you see what Jesus says, you go, my savior who has done everything for me, I am with him. My identity is found in what he says. I am accepted and loved. I'm a beloved child of God. And it's all because of what Jesus has done. And I'm going to root and ground myself in him and nothing else. And only when that begins to happen, do we follow him in every way and then go and make fishers of men that he's calling us to do. Because what's going to happen as you do that, as you go out and you seek to follow Jesus, you're going to be out of step with the world. And as you begin to alert people to this is who God is and this is the grace of God and this is what it looks like. Some people are going to go, you're crazy. And if your identity is rooted in what people think of you rather than who you are in Jesus, it's never going to work. And so it is so important that there's a humility, but there's also our identity is found in Jesus. Jesus calls us to follow him and then go love others. But it's going to leave you out of step with so much of the world that your identity has to be rooted in him. But then the last thing I want us to consider is how do we do that? What does Jesus show us here? What do we see in the life of Jesus of what that looks like? And I'll be brief here at the end on just the last part as the call of Levi. But this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. In verse 27. He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, come follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I want you to think about in the context, they're, they're hoping for a Messiah that's going to lead an overthrow of the government. He's going to say, follow me and we're going to overthrow Rome. And then he walks along and he sees a guy who's a tax collector, who's a Jew, who's an Israelite that is now working for the enemy Right. He's he's now collecting taxes for the people that are uh, oppressing the Jews. And Jesus says, hey, you come with me. You go, what? Right. That's where he's painting this other picture that everybody goes, what in the world is this guy doing? You know, later he'd have a guy named Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was? They were the ones that were ready to fight Rome. And he calls that guy to be his disciple, too. Kind of funny to think about him and Matthew sitting there together like. You come with me and you come with me and we're all going to be together. And Jesus is doing this and people are wrestling with what this looks like. And he says, come follow me. But look at the next thing that happens. And it says, and Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And so it helps sometimes to read creatively. And I'm not saying this is what happens. This is just me trying to think through the situation and what that would have been like. That Jesus says to Matthew, come follow me. And then the next thing it tells us is that Matthew throws a great big party at his house and invites all his friends. And I like to think from what Jesus says after this, that maybe just maybe he said to Matthew, why don't you invite all your friends over? I'd like to meet them. I see Matthew going, you want to meet my friends? They're all tax collectors. They all work for Rome. He's like, yeah, bring them on. Let's do this. And it says they all gather together and they have this great, big, huge party. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples. It's the religious elite of the day. 
grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them. I love that. Right? They say to the disciples, Why are you guys sitting like that? And Jesus hears it. He's like, oh, I'll take that one. Right? Just think how cool that would be to be Jesus' disciple and with him, and you're not really sure what the answer is, and you're like, I don't know. They're going to be upset. And Jesus is like, I got it. I got you in this. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I love this passage. I am so thankful that that is what God is like. He says, I have come to call those that are in need because I am in desperate need. And I am so thankful that that is what God is like. And I want you to think about what he says there when he says that. When he says, I have come to call, uh, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Or those who have no need of physician, but those who are sick. When he says those things, we can read that. And we can read that as what Jesus is saying is that there's some good people that he doesn't really need to bother with. And they're all fine. So I'm going to go to these over here that are really messed up. Because I think that's the way the scribes and Pharisees would have heard it. And been like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. We're good. We're the good people. But if you read through the whole of the Bible and what it says, who are those that are in need of a physician? Or who are those that are righteous? You know what Romans 3 says? No one is righteous. No, not one. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what Jesus is saying is that I have come to save sinners. I've come to call those that are in need, which is all of them, including the Pharisees and the scribes. But remember, the heart of a disciple is there has to be some humility. And what they heard was like, that's not us. But it takes the humility of understanding that I'm in need. And Jesus is coming to call us in. And so the first thing I want you to think about when he's talking about how we do this is we go to those that are in need. And that's every single person you meet. We are all in need. We all desperately need the grace of God in our life. And when we begin to think we've got it all together, we've missed it. The heart of a disciple is that humility. I am in need. And even as God begins to change your life and do things and you think you've got it together, you're still in need. Every moment of every day, I desperately need the grace of God in my life. And I love that Jesus says, come, be part of this. We're all desperately in need. But the last thing I want you to consider when we start to think about how we go and do this, that this is what God is like. Hebrews 1 says that when we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus is showing you God in the flesh, right? Perfect divinity now in humanity and what it looks like. He says, this is what it looks like. You go to the people that seem to be far away from God and you throw open the doors and you invite them in. And you bring them in. And what he's saying is that no one's beyond his reach, that there's no one there that God isn't calling to himself and he wants to be part of his family and he invites us in says come follow me and I'm going to make you fisher of men to go and we get the opportunity to do this and so when I read this I go man this is what God is like and this is what he's calling us to 
And no one is beyond his reach. And he is working in these ways. So you go, man, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Come and follow me and be a fisher of men. If you're not sure where to start, invite your neighbor over for dinner. I'm not joking. If you don't know where to begin, start there. Open the doors of your home and invite people in. Invite the one that you probably don't like as much. Right? Sorry. I see a few faces there like, really? Yeah. The lady that gets mad at you about your garbage cans. Invite her over. Right? I'm talking to myself there. But start to just invite people in. That's what Jesus does. You say, we want to follow him. Well, this is what following him looks like. He goes to these places and meets people where they are. And the answer is because we're all in desperate need and Jesus has come to call us into that relationship with him. And so it's a glorious picture of what God's like and the way he loves us. And so to follow him, we get to do that. We get to do that. And so let's start by following him, by looking like Jesus and inviting people in. So let's pray. God, I thank you uh, for these stories of who you are and the way you love us. I thank you that you have called us uh, to to know you and to love you, to be in a relationship with you. I thank you for this beautiful picture of you going to these places and sitting and enjoying meals and inviting people in. That you love us so much that you've come to do what we could never do for us. And for that, we thank you. I pray that you give each one of us a heart uh, to reach out to those that are around us, to love them, to care for them, to invite them in. I thank you that you've placed each person here um, in a different situation, different jobs and neighborhoods and places that you've placed people right in front of them. I pray that you would give us your eyes to see the people around you that are made in your image, that are your children, that you want to have a relationship with, that you would give us the opportunity to love them the way that you've loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This is now the time in our service where we uh, take up the tithes and offerings as we sing, and so we're going to do that now.